The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories, and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org radioactive. If you grew up in Missouri like I did, you already know this, but this time of the year especially is prime time for one of the state's most popular tourist destinations, the Lake of the Ozarks. It's the closest you can get to being on the ocean in the Midwest, in my opinion. I like doing the jet ski. I like parasailing. I like both of them. I like the quietness of the lake. We fish a lot down here, unlike a lot of people very, very nice place to relax, to vacation. It's went from a family lake to a party lake. Of course, it means different things to different people, and it's always changing, but especially a lot in recent years, as new developments are attracting larger, diverse crowds. This gets wild. That's all I'm going to say. I, had, I got a crazy story, bro. We've all been recording. You want to know how drunk you are? Pay us. There you go. Beautiful women, cold beer, a lot of water. I'll tell you, the lake is a beautiful thing, okay? The lake is where a lot of people from a lot of different elements and a lot of different, like, cultures combine. How else do you get a pool full of people like this? This is unreal. This is unbelievable. We love it, and we're going to continue to do it. (laughs) Wild party zone for some natural oasis for others. With water activities and entertainment, there's no wonder this vacation spot attracts millions of tourists each year. The Lake of the Ozarks is nestled within the Ozark Mountains in mid-central Missouri. It spans across multiple counties and stretches in kind of a weird serpent shape with tentacles, 92 miles from end to end. Wait, 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 one second. The popular Netflix show called Ozark is set at the Lake of the Ozarks. And at least this scene captures the crux of this place perfectly. This place right here has more shoreline than the whole coast of California. Listen to me. Every summer, the population of this place explodes. Tons of tourists. Midwesterners from all over the place. Blue collar, white collar, loaded with cash. Okay? With 1,150 miles of shoreline, that's a pretty attractive thing to landlocked Midwesterners, which means the Lake of the Ozarks brings in a lot of outside and inside interests. And with that comes a lot of push and pull for change. But this area has seen change before. This whole thing is a man-made body of water. It hasn't always just been there. In fact, how it ended up here is kind of nuts. And as for the people who have called this place home for generations, they still hold on to those memories from the time before the lake was here. 
from KCUR Studios, this is A People's History of Kansas City. I'm Suzanne Hogan. And on this episode, how a rough, isolated, rural Missouri landscape, originally made up of rolling hills and river bottoms, got transformed into a mega-urban tourist zone. People didn't really believe that the lake would, would ever fill up, and they didn't quite get the full concept of what that was going to do to them. Life kind of fell apart for a lot of us. The Lake of the Ozarks has been controversial since its inception. Back in 1931, the Bagnell Dam essentially created the Lake of the Ozarks by corralling the waters of the Osage River and others. But the project also submerged communities, displaced families, and landed two of the project leaders in jail. while creating interesting new opportunities for others. When they were building the lakes, the Ozarks, they, they wouldn't have a clue that, that, any, that, we're, that we're causing this change, not whether it's good or bad, but it's gonna change. Hey, producer Mackenzie Martin here, just popping in quickly to say, if you don't already know, that A People's History of Kansas City has an incredible vault of over 20 episodes that you should totally check out. Like our very first episode, which was all about a wind-out woman who took up arms and built a shack with her two sisters to protect a sacred burial ground in Kansas City, Kansas. She went on to become the first Native American woman to try a case before the U.S. Supreme Court. The episode is called The Occupation That Saved a Wyandotte Cemetery. It's at the very bottom of the feed. Give it a listen. Trust me. I first met the authors of the book, A People's History of the Lake of the Ozarks, back in 2018, before this podcast even existed. I was working as a producer for our daily talk show on KCUR called Central Standard, hosted by Gina Kaufman. Unfortunately, it's not on the air anymore, but it was one of the first avenues I had to dig into undertold local history stories. So when I came across this book, I was immediately fascinated by the concept, and we invited the two authors on for a segment. So a couple of Ozarkians have documented that story in a new book, The People's History of the Lake of the Ozarks. Kent Van Landit, good morning. Good morning, and thank you for having us. Thanks for being here. And Dan William Peak, hello to you, too. Thanks. So you guys, before we get into the story... Of During the, the interview, co-authors Kent Van Landit and Dan William Peak talked a lot about how being from the area, generations deep, helped them gather valuable oral histories, along with other research to frame their book. We're both from Versailles, went to high school there, and I've lived in that general area all my life. As Kent said, we grew up around there, so we knew a lot of people who actually had lived through the um, building of Bagnell Dam and the creation of the lake. And I'm a hillbilly. You know, I play the banjo. I, uh, I like moonshine. You know, all, the, all that stuff that uh, it is stereotypical. Now go on. Tell me more. <laughs> So uh, our relationship, I think, with, with the lake, we were born in 1945, so the lake had been there for 14 years when we were born. 
But as we were growing up, it, it was just kind of always there. And but it was new. It was new, and it was developing. I think about this a lot. The difference between the way we experience a place when it's something that's always just been a part of what we've known, as opposed to when it's something new that we've seen built or cause a major change. Now that just makes you see places differently. I think about this a lot in our cities and my neighborhood, but also a lot in terms of the lakes, rivers, and the springs of this area. Just how much they've transformed in the past century alone. For some quick reference here, most of the waterways and bodies of water that we see in this region don't exist in their natural state. They've been altered, designed. The Missouri River that cuts through Kansas City is engineered to be where it is. In fact, it used to move around a lot. And the man-made lakes, of which there are many, sprinkled through Missouri and Kansas and a lot of other parts of the Midwest, were also engineered to help control water flow, mostly through programs started by the federal government to help with flood control, irrigation, to generate power, and supply water and recreation for surrounding communities. But the story of the Lake of the Ozarks is a little different because it really has always been rooted in private interests. In particular, from two businessmen in Kansas City, a lawyer and real estate developer named Ralph Street and Walter P. Cravens, who was the president of the Kansas City Joint Stock Land Bank. So they got together and Street had always had this idea, or since 1912 at least, had had this idea of uh, building a dam uh, on the Osage River and creating this lake. Street wanted to build something that would create hydroelectric power for St. Louis. This type of power was a budding industry at the time. And it was before the New Deal, so there weren't a lot of regulations or government oversight. So Ralph Street starts working with Walter P. Cravens, who also saw the financial potential in this, and being the head of the land bank, he had control of a large amount of foreclosed properties in Kansas and Missouri. The plan was to trade, we'll go down to the Ozarks, we'll tell these people in the Ozarks that we'll give them land in Kansas or Missouri that's actually farmable, and that way they won't mind giving us the, the property they have. Street and Cravens joined forces officially in 1924 and created the Missouri Hydroelectric Power Company and a cover corporation called Farmers Fund, Inc. that would deal with the transfer of bonds and mortgages. Well, there's a little miscalculation there. One, people were already making a living in that area through hunting and farming. People of mostly German, Scotch-Irish, and some indigenous descent had been homesteading and squatting in the area for generations. And historically, the Osage River was a valuable waterway to the Osage and other tribes. The communities in the early 1900s were small and functioned on their own economies. They were isolated from the bigger changes happening on the outside, but were described as resilient, resourceful, independent, and full of pride. And second, the methods Street and Cravens were using to finance and incentivize people to leave their homes weren't exactly legal. Street sent a crew down there with $5 bills in their pocket, and they went to, from, from house to house and said, we'll give you a $5 bill for an, a three-year option on your property. So uh, then imagine the surprise of the mountaineer when somebody knocked on his door or her door and said, um, we're going to exercise the option on your property. 
Ralph Street himself spent a lot of time down in the region surveying the land and making deals. And some people did take him up on the offer to relocate. Meanwhile, misappropriation of funds with Cravens' Farmers Fund, Inc., the Missouri Hydroelectric Power Company, and the Land Bank, of which he all had a hand in, landed him in jail for fraud. But even by that point, things were in motion, and the plan continued on. Ralph Street then started working for a Union Electric Company out of St. Louis. And by 1929, they were ready to begin construction on the dam. And as it happened, they picked the perfect spot to do it because uh, it was the right place on the river. And the local population was, was not organized. You know, there was no polit- political or civic organization that would enable them to rise up and say, hey, don't, we're not going to allow this to happen beyond the land deals, to prepare for the dam's construction and transforming the landscape into a lake bed with turbines, Union Electric had to remove and clear structures. They burnt down homes, cut down trees, moved cemeteries. For a lot of people living there, it was a confusing and traumatic time. When you're very poor and you've lived in that area, haven't seen any major construction. First, it's the people here, the dam was gonna be built. And they said, well, yeah, that'll take forever and if it works. And then people were like, say, 30 miles upstream, you know, kind of hear about it, but say, well, something down there is not going to impact them. Many things went under the Lake of the Ozarks. Many things forgotten today. The 75th anniversary of the Lake of the Ozarks Bagnell Dam documentary captured stories from some of the former residents of one of the larger displaced towns, Old Lynn Creek, which sits beneath the water today. And this leads down to the town of Lynn Creek. Only thing is you can't get there from here. The route to Old Lynn Creek lies in stories and memories. The documentary lets us actually hear from some of the people who lived through this change, but aren't around anymore. Nobody could believe it could happen. I realized what it was all about. Life kind of fell apart for a lot of us. One time I tried to put together a little poem using the names of some of the forgotten towns. The old town of Lynn Creek lies there in the deep, and Nonsuch and Purvis and Wayhan so sleep, and Gladstone and Irontown their company keep. The old town of Lynn Creek lies there in the deep. The construction of Bagnell Dam itself started a whole new era of change for the region. It created the new towns of Lynn Creek and Camdenton. And somebody, or rather lots of bodies, had to build this thing. This project started in 1929, right about the time of the Depression. And you can talk to older people, and and we were able to interview people that said there was not a depression in that area because the construction of the dam employed about 4,000 people on any given day. Union Electric, in their records, said that they employed over 20,000 people. So therefore, people could find jobs there. Some of the very people who were displaced by the construction of the dam found themselves working to build it. And with so many people carving out new beginnings and coming in for work, different structures and accommodations had to be built. And a new type of community was formed. 
People worked around the clock. Add that to the already bustling surrounding railroad lines, they even built a special line to go through the dam to help with construction. In those two years, the area saw a lot of change happen very quickly. And what was once a super rural, isolated, small population started to shift and become more urban. In February of 1931, the lake began to fill. Then by mid-May, it had crested. It was shocking to see the area transform so dramatically, so quickly. Some never believed it would hold water. They didn't think the water would get that high. So th those people were really in disbelief and you know, really hardly accepted the idea that there would be that type of thing. On May 30th, 1931, the dam officially opened for traffic. According to a Kansas City Star article, visitors flocked to the nearby town of Eldon to see the dam, taking residents by surprise. Hotels filled up in other surrounding towns, and one headline boasted of what they called the Southwest's greatest lake. Yes, they said Southwest, go figure. Articles bragged of hundreds of miles of newly formed shorelines, filled with scenic beauty and islands to be discovered ideal for summer homes. But they also noted that the upper end was still very dangerous to navigate by boat and warned of floating logs. But in those early years, the Depression, combined with World War II, delayed extensive development. Union Electric, who owned the properties, found few buyers. But there were some notable early occupants, like the Ozark Pistol Club a private club of booze, music, and wild parties rumored to be funded by the likes of Kansas City political boss and mobster Tom Pendergast. There was an actual shooting range on the property. Their motto was, drink until midnight, piss till dawn. Also nearby was Musser's Ozark Tavern Jazz Club in Eldon, Missouri, where it said Charlie Parker would visit on occasion and entertain the white crowds. Even though it was a sundown town and was illegal for African Americans to be out at night. Another infamous spot was Egan Lodge, today called Wilmore Lodge, a massive clubhouse owned by Union Electric executive Louis E. Egan. Yes, that's the owner of the same company behind the construction of the dam. To make his guests comfortable, Egan provided private airplanes to shuttle executives and politicians back and forth. He also later ended up in jail for having a fun to bribe politicians. But this type of extravagant behavior from some of the founding lake elite added to a sense of class division and tension in those early years. That resentment is still yeah. evident. I mean, you, uh, they call themselves true locals. Kent and I are true locals, you know, because uh, our families go back way beyond when the lake was created by the, the impoundment. There's still that idea of us and them, uh, you know, the new newcomers and the true locals. But even some of the true locals, who didn't maybe get the best deal at first, started to see a growing opportunity out of this body of water. There were untapped potentials in this different type of economy. And this new lake life was the type of thing they could capitalize on for themselves. The lake of the Ozark means everything to me. The Ozarks. If you can't relax here, you likely never will. From lakeside to hillside, 
If you come looking for ritzy accommodations here in the Ozarks, you won't have any trouble finding them. They are here. After all, what could be nicer in the late afternoon than taking care of some knitting or going to work on the next day's fishing lure and watching the kids take one last dive? The dam's construction after 1931 created a ripple effect of development that the lake's early visionaries most likely never could have imagined. The 1930s and 40s were an era of new regulations in the United States with the passage of the New Deal, and it became illegal for public utility companies to engage in outside business. So most of the lake shoreline, which had previously been owned by Union Electric, was put up for sale and sold to a St. Louis real estate developer in 1945. And though this developer did a lot to transform the lake, it was actually Lee Mace who left perhaps one of the biggest cultural marks on the lake's development. Well, folks, welcome to our Ozark Opry get-together tonight. We hope you all have a little fun with us. And to get us really rolling, here's an old-time hoedown called the Gray Eagle. Lee Mace and his wife, Joyce Mace, were born in the area before the lake was built. And they would go on to create Lee Mace's Ozark Opry in 1953. It was a hillbilly musical cultural icon that would influence other entrepreneurs and transform the region and outside perceptions of it for decades to come. They were the first ones locally to recognize that the lake could be a commercial fulcrum, you know, that they could actually profit from figuring out what people wanted to do. Dan William Peake, who is one of the co-authors of the book A People's History of the Lake of the Ozarks, also wrote a book all about the Mace's contributions to the area and the Ozark Opry. Like I said earlier, I talked to him back in 2018, but should note that he passed away a year after that interview. Dan was an endless time capsule of information and keeper of so many fascinating stories from this place that he loved so dearly. I played in Lee Mace's Ozark, uh, what was it, Lee Mace's Hillbilly Hootenanny when I was 18. By the time Dan started playing the banjo at the Opry, it was already a regional icon. But Lee Mace's musical beginnings came from his childhood in the 1920s and 30s. He was raised in a musical household, went on to serve in the military, where he famously found a stand-up bass broken in the trash. He took it home, had it repaired with an old baseball bat. I know, it's wild. And he went on to play it for years. You can actually go see this bass fiddle on display at the Missouri State Museum in Jefferson City today. All right, the Lake of Ozark Square Dancers. Hey, hey, that's the fun. According to Dan William Peake, Lee Mace and his wife actually left the Ozarks to spend a little time in the country music capital of Nashville, working for the famous country radio station, WSM. He and his wife had something called the Ozark Mountain Square Dancers. And they were hired by Nashville, by uh, WSM, uh, to be on the Grand Ole Opry. From Nashville, Tennessee, Prince Albert, the world's most popular smoking tobacco, presents another broadcast of the South's most popular radio program, the Grand Ole Opry. So they were the, the Square Dancers. They were actually were pretty well known. And they had a national following, that kind of thing. But Lee decided to come back to Osage Beach and start up his own music show, which was Lee Mace's Ozark Opry. So he, and, and it was very successful. 
Here at the Ozark Opry, we always try to include something for the kids, and our funny man has got a song for the kids. I'll While Nashville's Grand Ole Opry promoted country music, Lee Mace's Ozark Opry was all about preserving the old-timey Mountain Hillbilly tradition, the aesthetic he grew up with. Lee and Joyce Mace are credited with starting the first live nightly show in America, and it became a model used by other Lake Area entrepreneurs, as far out as Branson, Missouri. And this had a ripple effect on the locals and the economy as more and more businesses and resorts popped up, as did other forms of entertainment, and it all brought in more outsiders. It came to shape what people thought of the Lake of the Ozarks, this hillbilly mecca of family fun, lake activities, and entertainment. But it also became a symbol of economic progress for the area. In the post-World War II era, the greatest generation and the boom of babies they created embraced the ethics of hard work combined with a newfound sense of prioritizing leisure and family, the American dream. The concept of vacations and lakeside properties were being marketed to the masses. This obviously wasn't the case for everyone and only catered to a certain economic class. And the Lake of the Ozarks was mostly segregated until after the Civil Rights Act. Though close by, the growing black middle class of the 1950s and 60s also enjoyed their own man-made lake resort called Lake Placid, which could be its own episode. But as America was changing, this lake was changing, making way for more entrepreneurs, working people, and champions of the lake, as author Kent Van Landet, who still lives in the area, likes to describe them. And that's when you started to see the growth start and what happened to cause it to continue was once they were down there for a week, they would start looking for restaurants and maybe a grocery store and maybe a place to buy souvenirs. And then all of a sudden, you know, they were down there and they got a scratch on their arm and they needed a stitches or something. Well, they need medical care. It's that snowball, how the actions of a few at first affect more and more and more people and can eventually completely transform a place. Today, newer roadways have made it easier for people to get to the lake, which has led to more and more traffic. Resorts have opened, closed, old cabins have been completely renovated or torn down. There are more services and types of entertainment. Near Osage Beach, there are a number of big dance clubs and new developments are on the docket even in the next year. The population of the lake shoreline swells to the brim with tourists during the highest season, which is the summer. So the reality is, is that a lot of rich people have come down here and they've enjoy, enjoyed the Ozarks. But to me, that's capitalism, right? Yeah. Like people have explored the Ozarks and they enjoy it. And I think that that's a good thing because the more money that gets poured into Missouri is actually a really good thing because guess what? A rising tide lifts all ships. I will come up here a couple of times a year for conferences. And what I've noticed is it's more, you have more condos up here, you have more homes, uh, it's more modernized, more restaurants, and it's just opened up more. When I came home after 10 years, um, the area had changed so dramatically. There are places that are completely gone that um, it just is not recognizable. I took my nephews out on the boat last year and we could not find a cove without a house. Even Lee Mace's old Ozark Opry isn't around anymore. 
Lee Mace loved to fly, and he died in a plane crash back in 1985. His wife, Joyce, continued on with the Opry tradition for decades after his death. But eventually, it had to close its doors, and the old auditorium sat empty until it caught fire back in 2013. It's kind of one of those, I still can't believe it, kind of losses. A police officer noticed flames coming from the Ozark Opry building yesterday afternoon. The fire was in the theater's attic. It took firefighters about two hours to get those flames under control. The Opry's business manager, Gene Williams, says the loss of the Opry turns another page in the Lake of the Ozarks history books. The main road in town is named Lee Mace's Memorial Highway in his honor. Recently, I met up with the People's History of the Lake of the Ozarks author, Kent Van Landet, and the late Dan William Peake's wife, Joy Peake, at a library in Versailles, Missouri, that same town where they all grew up together. What were you guys like in high school? Well, Dan says I wouldn't have anything to do with him, but that really wasn't true. But, <laughs> but anyway, we didn't, we didn't date at the time. We were just real good friends all the way through school. Joy's family roots also run deep here, going back generations. Her parents were interviewed for the book, and after they retired, they started cataloging the graves that were moved to higher ground during the dam's construction. She says not all the graves could have realistically been moved, which adds a certain sentiment and lore to the mysteries of what all lies beneath the waters today. Like the popular tale of the sunken church bell that used to be at Old Lynn Creek. I don't know if it's true or not, but supposedly there's a church that's got a bell that rings. <laughs> but it's underwater, so I, I think it's probably a folklore, but it's kind of a cool thing that they say that they can hear that bell ringing from the church. <laughs> Joy still lives on the lake in the house that she shared with Dan. She gets that some change is inevitable, but it still doesn't make it easy. And now most of those fishing cottages are gone. The houses came in to start with. They were a little bit bigger than the fishing cottages. And then all of a sudden they started disappearing because of the some of the rules about, you know, the sewer systems and whatever. And now we have condos. And so instead of having a one house sitting there, there is a huge condo that has maybe, you know, 80 units, which increases the number of people perhaps on the lake or coming to use the facilities, the grocery stores or, you know, the movie theaters or whatever. So it, it's, it's just truly has become urban from what used to be rural hillbilly area. And me as a regular local, I, I just assume they all go home. <laughs> that's probably not nice to say, but, um, you know, I like the quiet. I like the, you know, being there, uh, being able to do non-urban things, but it is nice to have that. Of course, I guess you'd also look at it, if you're a local that owns a, a business, you, you look forward to those people coming. You want them to come. She acknowledges the tension in that. The change isn't always all good or all bad. It just is. Sometimes it's just a complicated emotion that you just sit with, feel, and live. Before we wrapped up our visit for the day, both Kent and Joy brought up the story of a lilac bush. It's how Dan William Peake started the people's history of the Lake of the Ozarks book. He wrote, It may still be custom of some rural folk, as it was in earlier times, to take a plant clipping from an old home place when moving to a new or other place. In the Ozarks, the most common such clippings were probably that of a lilac. They took with them 
part of the land in, in the in a lilac bush. So, you know, that was something that they were trying and they knew they had to move. They knew they were going to be, you know, dislocated from their family land, but they wanted to take part of it with them. Dan went on to write, swaddled in mud, to be planted in the solid of the next home or farmstead, lilacs are a durable bush. And it's likely some of those born of such clippings from the lands and homes that were submerged by the creation of the Lake of the Ozarks in 1931 still blossom where the families removed came to rest. Thanks for listening to A People's History of Kansas City. This podcast is a production from KCUR Studios. This episode was written, produced, and mixed by me, Suzanne Hogan, with editing by Madeline Fox and our senior producer, Mackenzie Martin. Huge shout out this episode to the amazing Gina Kaufman, whose 2018 interview you heard throughout. We also had awesome research help from intern Gabriella Lacey and intern Noah Zahn, who braved the Lake of the Ozarks during one of the busiest lake weekends, the 4th of July, to get those phenomenal interviews. Speaking of, you heard from Jen Spray, Amita Ragavanchi's kids, Marlene and Gary Martins, Bonnie Woods, Mike Enrique, Nate Lucas, Belinda Bell, Bonnie Woods, Ashley Greer, and Bear Creek. You also heard clips of this episode from the Netflix show Ozark, KCUR Central Standard, the 75th anniversary of the Lake of the Ozarks Bagnell Dam documentary, the Travel Channel, the Ted Mack Show, WSM's Grand Ole Opry, and K. ARCG. Music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Randy Stouch. And you heard archival music from Lee Mace's Ozark Opry on stage, thanks to the wonderful Mars Sound Archives at UMKC. If you like this episode, another good one to check out would be the episode called A Toast to the Birthplace of Sliced Bread, all about how the state of Missouri is home to one of the greatest things and almost forgot it. You can get in touch with us anytime at kcur.org slash peopleshistory or by emailing us at peopleshistorykc at kcur.org. We also have a Facebook group you can join for more stories about the people who created Kansas City. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care and thanks for listening. <laughs>